Romans chapter 12 verse 11. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for gathering us here. Thank you for the wonderful time of worship. Thank you for that beautiful offering song, God. And we want to worship you and praise you and give this time to you, Lord. As we come before you for the word, I pray that you would release the spirit of wisdom and revelation upon us so that we may know you better. God, help us to hear and to receive what you are saying to us today. And I want to submit myself to you at this time. I pray that you will use me to speak your word to your church today. Come, Holy Spirit, have your way with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to piggyback on Pastor Sam's series on passion for God. So he, if you go on our website, there are four sermons on passion for God. Passion for God 1, 2, 3, and 4. Today is passion for God 5. And the verse that we read today, Romans 12, verse 11, it's Paul's instruction to the church in Rome, to the believers in Rome. Paul is saying, never be lacking in zeal, right? Don't lose your zeal for the Lord and keep your spiritual fervor. Keep fervent in your spirit. Keep fervent in your spirit, in your pursuit, in your love, in your obedience, in your following of the Lord that you would keep your spiritual fervor. Pastor Kenny actually just touched upon this text at EMP, I think last week, and he said another way of translating this is keep your spiritual fervor uh, boiling, you know? Keep that passion for the Lord boiling in your heart. So, you know, to paraphrase, keep your passion for God, right? Paul says, keep your passion boiling. Keep zealous. Stay zealous for the Lord. Keep your spiritual fervor. Hopefully, you're asking yourself, am I zealous for the Lord? Do I have spiritual fervor? Am I fervent in my spirit for God? So you have to think about that as we go through this sermon. I have another question to ask you. Did the early church keep their spiritual fervor? Did the early church keep their spiritual zeal? Did the early church keep serving the Lord as Paul had instructed them to do? Yes. (laughs) I think so. I think the answer is yes. History tells us that the early church grew in an incredibly rapid manner. Here's a, a quote. Sociologists recognize that Christianity grew at a rate of approximately 40% per decade. Sociologists estimate that at the launch of the church, there were approximately 1,000 Christians. By AD 100, that number had risen to about 7,500 Christians in the Roman Empire. Come 150 AD, there were about 40,000 Christians. Flash forward to AD 350, when there were as many as 34 million Christians in the known world. It's so incredible, the growth of the early church, that 
historians study and they come up with theories to figure out how did the, the, how did the early church, how did Christianity grow at such a rapid rate in the first few hundred years of the church? <clears throat> My question that I want us to meditate upon is, what energized the early church to maintain their passion? Don't you want to know? I guess my contention that I want to share with us today is that whatever it was that energized the early church to maintain their passion, if we can tap into the same thing, that, that should, that can and should energize us to keep our passion for the Lord, to maintain our passion for the Lord. Whatever energized the early church to maintain their passion that should and can maintain our passion for us, energize us to maintain our passion. Um, Judges chapter 2, verse 7 to 12. Judges chapter 2, verse 7 to 12, it says this. The people, the Israelites, served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. Verse 10, after that whole generation, oh, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. This is a sad verse. This is in the book of Judges. This is right after the people of Israel enter into the promised land. Joshua, who was Moses' successor as the leader of the people of Israel, lead them into the promised land. And what the verse is saying is when Joshua was alive and the generation of people that knew Joshua, that followed Joshua and experienced the power of God, when they were alive, these people served God and followed God. But when that whole generation passed away and the next generation came up that didn't know the Lord, that didn't know the ways of the Lord or what God had done, they forsook Him. They turned away. They forgot about God. This is a sad passage. But for the early church, what we can see is that at least for a few hundred years, even though their initial uh, leader, Jesus, died or dies in a sense. He leaves them. And the early apostles, the first eyewitnesses that, that encountered Jesus and walked with Jesus, they have passed away. But for generations after them, the early church is able to maintain their passion. They're able to maintain their zeal. They're able to maintain their fervor. <clears throat> Don't you want that? You know? Don't you want the same Thing, whatever it was that energized them so that we can also maintain the passion. And I think so much could be said about how they were able to keep that passion, what energized them to keep their passion. But today, we're just going to narrow it down to two things. I only have two points for this message. So this is my main uh, idea. What energized the early church to maintain their passion can and should energize us today. So what were the things that energized the early church? I have two points. Number one, they had experiential knowledge of Jesus. 
They had experiential knowledge of Jesus. Their passion and zeal were not maintained simply by a careful study of the word, deep meditation, intellectual understanding, debates, dialogue, arguments against the various false teachings of their day. All those things are important, right? Study, deep meditation, intellectual understanding, diving deep, uh, dialogue, debates, discussions, argument against false teaching. Those are all important, but it's not enough to maintain that passion. In Judges chapter 2, verse 10 that we just read, it says, After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what He had done for Israel. They didn't know God. This generation that came up after them didn't know God firsthand. They had heard about God, hopefully through their ancestors, but they themselves never experienced God and never knew God, and therefore they walked away. The apostles, the first church leaders that began the church, the apostles were eyewitnesses of Jesus. <clears throat> they knew Jesus, right? They saw his miracles. They experienced his miracles. They were there when Jesus was teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, and they are listening and experiencing all those things. They are there when Jesus is going up on the cross, and they witness Jesus dying. And they also are there when Jesus rises again, and he appears to them in his resurrected body. And he tells them, I have risen from the grave. And they are there to see Jesus ascending into heaven. And so for them, of course, they're filled with passion because of this incredible experience. Isn't that the case for anything that actually happens in this life? If you are the first-hand, you first-hand experience something, you are filled with passion, and then you go to your friends and you try to tell them, this is really incredible. So-and-so happened. This wonderful thing happened. But your friend just doesn't get it. You know, I, I think I shared this story a while ago. When I went to Israel with the staff, for me, the most incredible experience was going to Mount Sinai. Yeah, I don't, some of you have been to Israel and have done this trip with our church. So you uh, go to Egypt late at night and you spend the night at this cheap, hotel there, you wake up very early while it's still dark, and you ride a camel up Mount Sinai under this moonlight. It's beautiful, and it's incredible. It's amazing. And so you're going up Mount Sinai, and then you get to a certain point, and then you have to get off the camel, and then you have to hike for about an hour, and you hike up to the top of Mount Sinai, and it's still dark. And you sit there, and you wait for the sun to come up. And as the sun rises, if you're with our group, we start to sing and worship the Lord together. It's an incredible, amazing experience. But every time I share that experience, I just feel like people don't get it. You know, there is, there is, I mean, some of you are nodding. That's very kind. You're like, yeah. Some of you have probably experienced it. See, if you've experienced it, you're like, I know exactly what P. Nate is talking about. Some of you that haven't experienced it, you're just like, oh yeah, that sounds really cool. That sounds really cool. You know, I told my wife, because that was my biggest, incredible, most ex wonderful experience, because she, she, she couldn't join us. And uh, she was going to go like a year or two later, and I'm telling her, oh, this is awesome. And she's just like, oh yeah, that sounds kind of exciting. You know, it's okay. 
Like she just doesn't get it. And at the end, isn't it like that when you experience something and you're trying to share that experience with someone else that hasn't experienced it, all you can say is, man, you should have been there. Right? Only if you could have been there and experienced it yourself, then you will know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> so these disciples, the early, the first apostles, they are filled with passion because they witnessed Jesus Christ. They were with him, they walked with him, his teachings, his miracles, and then he dies. And so, so they're thinking, this is the Messiah, but then he dies, so their hope is crushed. Can you imagine? They're thinking, well, this, this, I think this guy is the Messiah, the Son of God. You know, he's the long-awaited Messiah. But then he dies on the cross, and you're like, what is going on? All your hopes and dreams are shattered. And then a few days later, he comes to you again. He's resurrected, and he says, I'm resurrected. I have risen from the grave. I am the Messiah. All the things that you are hoping and believing about me, it's true. And so they are amazed. Their mind is blown. And then they see him ascend into heaven. And the angels come and say, he's going to come back one day to judge the living and the dead. And they just, their mind is blown and they're filled with passion. The disciples that come after them, first come to faith through the sharing of the apostles, but it doesn't just stay that, at that level, right? They also begin to experience Jesus. They begin to experience God for themselves. Turn to Acts chapter 9, verse 10 through 19. It's not up on the screen because I wanted to encourage you to use your Bible. And I wanted to tell you, uh, since COVID restrictions are almost all gone in Hong Kong, we are now making or letting you know that we do have physical Bibles at the back of our sanctuary. There's a bookshelf. You can grab a Bible on the way in so that you can read the Bible with us. Acts chapter 9, verse 10 through 19. <clears throat> Acts 9, uh, verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and, the king, and their kings and to the people of Israel. I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. What a wonderful story, right? This is the story of the conversion of Saul, who later becomes Paul, and is one of the greatest apostles. Uh, he's written many of the New Testament books. But what I want to focus on in that story is, think about Ananias. Ananias, we don't know anything about Ananias. This is the only time we hear about Ananias. And he doesn't even have a title. He doesn't have a special title like the prophet of the Lord or an apostle or a leader in the church. You know what he is called? He is called a disciple. Just a normal disciple in the church. Wouldn't you guys call yourselves a disciple? Right? You're a disciple of Jesus Christ. He's just called a disciple. But 
His relationship with God is such that the Lord appears to him. Right? His experience as a disciple is he experiences the presence of Jesus firsthand and Jesus comes to him. And what I guess I'm trying to imagine is that maybe this wasn't such a crazy occurrence because Ananias doesn't freak out. If the Lord Jesus appeared to you, wouldn't you freak out? Wouldn't you be like on your face, Lord, this is too much, you can't, I can't. But instead, how does Ananias respond? He says, are you sure, Jesus? He actually debates Jesus and discusses with him, I don't know if you're right because Saul is this crazy guy and I've heard so much about him. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I think the early church, the disciples that came after the first apostles also began to have their own experiences with Jesus. And they had firsthand experiential knowledge of who God is. Coming to faith in Jesus is more than just intellectual debates, clever arguments, and persuasions. There is a place for that, but it's also an experience. Right? If you were to share your story of how you came to Christ, you would maybe talk about how the arguments, you read some book, or you heard an argument, an apologetic about God, and that convinced you. But most of us would have some kind of an experience with the Lord that brought you to faith in Jesus Christ. One of my favorite services at church is the baptism service. We have baptism once in a while at church. And when we, what we do at baptism service is we have all the baptism candidates come up here and they share their testimony, right, of how God found them, how they experienced God, how they came to uh, saving faith in Jesus Christ. And it's always so powerful and so encouraging because we hear stories of how God has revealed himself to these different individuals and we're filled with wonder and gratefulness and we are amazed at the goodness, the mercy, the kindness of God as we hear these different stories. My experience with God came at a young age. I was about 15 years old. You know, I grew up in the church. My dad's a missionary. My grandfather is a pastor. And so I grew up in the church hearing the stories of Jesus. I think in a way I have always believed that Jesus was king. But right when I was about 15, I started hanging out with the wrong crowd. I can tell you the extent of my rebellion against God was I took a puff of one of my friend's cigarette. And I drank a 4% alcoholic beverage. Yeah? It was called Sub-Zero. I still remember. I don't even know if that drink exists to this day. But I had a Sub-Zero and I came home one day and my mom smelled something. And she called me out and I was like, uh, I think I just kind of blew it off. I don't even know what I said. I tried to make an excuse and just hide the fact that I was doing it. But I started hanging out. And you know what? If I had stayed in that group, who knows? Maybe I would have gone further. But as I'm kind of experimenting with rebellion, I also I felt kind of bad. And, and then during that time, God led me to a youth group, a youth group that was actually quite charismatic, and they stressed uh, the importance of encountering God, experiencing God. I, I, I know that there are 
extremes, we have to be cautious. But that youth group, for me, it was wonderful because that's the place where I experienced God. I don't remember exactly when it happened. It was either before the message, during worship time, or after the message, during worship time. But it was worship time, and I had my hands up. And they're big on praying for you, and praying for you to experience the love of God, and praying for you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I remember, for me, what happened was I had my hands up, and my legs just started shaking. It doesn't happen now. But for them, for some reason, it was just like shaking and shaking. And that wasn't the only thing. I also felt the presence of God. I felt the love of God. And I felt that, hey, you know what? God is not just some stories that I've grown up with. God is real. Okay, I know that there is more to it than feelings. Okay, So it's not just about feeling warm in your heart. But that was the thing for me that helped me see, oh, God is not just my father's faith, my dad's, my mom's, the stories they tell me about, God is real. And I remember talking to a friend in youth group, and back then, the term that we used for whatever reason was full on. And she asked me, hey, are you full on for God? We were teenagers, right? So are you full on for God? And I, and I remember thinking and saying to her, yeah, I'm full on. And my rationale was, I've experienced God. God is real. All the stuff I had heard about God growing up, 15, 16 years of my life, is all real. God is real. How can I not be full on? And I'm happy to report, you know, from that moment on until now, 25 years later, I am still full on for the Lord. You know, I never walked away from God. I, because of that experience with the Lord, and I, for, to me, God became real through that. I know it's such a minor thing. But it did something to that young boy's heart, right, when I was 15, 16 years old. And I thought, well, God is real. How can I not be full on? <clears throat> and that's been my desire and heart and hope when I was doing my own youth ministry. I think because that was my experience of coming to faith. When I was doing youth ministry, man, my hope and my dream, you know, was that our kids would encounter God. I just knew these kids are good kids. You know, they grew up in the church. They're all, you know, when I was doing youth ministry in SP, all the students, actually not all, but most of the students were good kids, right? They weren't going out. Maybe all they would do is take a puff of a cigarette, you know? Maybe they might drink a Sub-Zero once, you know, or once in a while, and then they would feel bad about it. And they were all good kids. They kind of grew up in the church. But I knew that unless they encounter the Lord and they have an experience with God, uh, and, they, and they know him, you know, firsthand, all these things that they have learned won't make an impact in their life, won't make a big difference in their lives. And so that was my uh, hope and kind of my, I guess, ministry philosophy. You know, I always looked for ways to pray for them, prophesy, you know, do various things to say and, and, and pray that God would you encounter our students. Um. <clears throat> So, yeah, my, basically my, the application for this point for us is we need experiential knowledge of Jesus Christ again and again and again and again and again and again. It's not just a one-time thing that happens and then it sets you up for the rest of your life. You know, it's not that 25 years ago I experienced God in the youth group through the shaking of my leg and the warm feelings of my heart. And then for 25 years I've held on to that experience 
and I didn't walk away. No, it's again and again I encounter the Lord. I experience His love for me. I hear His voice in many different ways. There's different ways of experiencing God and different ways of understanding the first-hand experiential knowledge of God. But we need it again and again and again and again to keep that passion going for the Lord and to, and to not lose you know, that, uh, that zeal, that love, that gratefulness, that wonder, that amazement of who God is. It's uh, ongoing experiences with God because we are so good at forgetting. We're so good at forgetting. And life gets difficult or busy and we get distracted and we forget about God and we need to come to Him again. We need to experience Him again. And my encouragement to you is let's uh, create opportunities. Let's take the opportunities that is given by the church or just in your own life, create opportunities to experience God. Right? We can't manufacture. You can't manufacture an experience with God. You can't manufacture an encounter with the Lord. Right? It's not just we dim the lights and we play nice soft music. We have Wesley on the cello. And all of a sudden we're like, oh, the glory of God. That's not how it happens. We can't fake it or make it happen on our own. But I think we can position ourselves and go to these opportunities where the, uh, the potential for experiencing God and encountering God is greater. Right? When you are trying to pursue somebody, when you're trying to get to know a girl or a guy, can you manufacture chemistry? No. Right? You can't just, if the mood is right, somehow the spark is going to be created and you're going to fall in love and love at first sight is going to happen. No, you need to keep positioning yourself to be with that person with the hope that somehow, someday, some conversation would happen and then, wow, you're going to, something's going to develop. You know, when I was pursuing Monica, zero chemistry. I'm, so, I'm sad to say there was, honestly, there was zero chemistry. I, long story, I had asked her out and she had said no and things were awkward and it was just like I had pretty much given up. And uh, it was really only by God's grace that she was living in Sydney. She ended up moving to Hong Kong. And not only moving to Hong Kong, attending our church, not only attending our church, but working in the same office, in this church office. And so, not that I created the opportunities, but God graciously allowed me these opportunities to spend time with her. Right? So every day, there was potential for spark. To be created, right? Every day, because we're spending time every day together. Where you know that was back then. It was a small office, so we would go out to lunch together, like all of us. And so every day, there's opportunity for something to be created, for an encounter, for a chance encounter with Monica that would spark this relationship. And that's what I mean. You know, in a human relationship, it's the same. And I think with God, I want to encourage you: come out to the anniversary services. Come out to the retreat that we're having in a few months. You know, go to house church. Uh, Come out for altar calls and do ministry time. Receive prayer. Receive prayer from the well. Take the inner healing ministry uh, that we have at Church River. Uh, Take experiencing God, discipleship class. Come out to early morning prayer. Uh, Go out to the outreaches and serve in different ways. All of these are opportunities for you to encounter God. And um, 
you can put yourself in a position where the potential and the possibility of encountering God is greater. So that's my first point. Number two. Number two, what energized the early church to maintain their passion for the Lord? Number two, they regarded Jesus as their absolute king and Lord. They regarded Jesus as their absolute king and Lord. Their vision of Jesus was not just, oh, he's my best friend. Oh, he loves me. He's kind to me. And he died on the cross for me. Those are wonderful things. They're all true. But their vision of Jesus was, Jesus is my absolute king and Lord of all things, which automatically leads to, I'm going to obey, fully obey, fully follow. It seems to me the gospel that was preached by the apostles, if you look through the book of Acts, look at there's about seven or, seven or eight occurrences when the apostles are preaching the gospel. It's their opportunity to share and teach. And they're sharing the gospel. The gospel that was preached by the apostles was an announcement about who Jesus is. That he is the long-awaited Messiah. He is Lord and King of all the earth. Rather than simply a teaching on how to get saved. The gospel that was preached in the scriptures, in the book of Acts, and in the epistles, when they're speaking about the gospel, the gospel is more than just, oh, here's the four-step way for you to get saved so you don't go to hell, but you can go to heaven. That's part of the gospel, but the gospel they preached was an announcement about who Jesus is. It was the life of Jesus, his ministry, his death on the cross, his resurrection, and his ascension, and the fact that he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. All those things are included in their gospel presentation. And what happens as a result of that is they get a vision of Jesus as King and Lord Not just, oh, he's my ticket to heaven. He is my king and Lord, the one that deserves full worship, full obedience, full following. And the the vision that they had of Jesus demanded radical obedience, and it compelled them to follow him. Let's go to Romans chapter 1, verse 1 through 6. Romans 1, 1 through 6. Uh, uh, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him, we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Can you keep that up there, please? It says, Paul is called to be an apostle, set apart, set apart verse 1, for the gospel of God. And the gospel he promised is something that was promised long ago from the Old Testament scriptures with the story of Israel. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all those promises 
That's the gospel. And Jesus, in verse 4, was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection. So his resurrection was proof that he is the Son of God. And then Paul says, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul declares that Jesus Christ is our Lord. And then he says in verse 5, that something that he was called to do was to call the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. I just want us to consider something. What do we see as the central message of the gospel? Typically speaking. You know, sometimes within the church, we say things like, Oh man, that worship service, that, those worship songs, those were gospel songs. You ever say that? You know, when we, when we had worship team meetings and we talk about what songs are we going to choose? You know, we talk about that. It's intentional. You know, we, it's, it's always typically two fast songs, a medium song, and a slow song, right? That's, that is, it's, it's, it's like that because we're intentional about choosing what songs to sing. But some songs, we say, oh, it's, it's a shallow song. Or it's just a personal love song. And some songs are gospel songs. What does that mean? Or have you heard people say, man, the gospel was preached today. Or that sermon just didn't have the gospel. It wasn't a gospel sermon. What do we mean when we say those things? Well, when we typically use the word gospel in the church, what do we mean? This is what I think we mean. This is what I mean, typically, when I use those words. The gospel, when we say, oh, this is a gospel song or it's a gospel sermon, what I mean is that the teaching or the song talked about our sinfulness, God's love for us, Jesus' death on the cross, and our hope for the future. And it also includes the teaching that we are not saved by our works, but we're saved through our faith in Jesus Christ. Do you agree? What's wrong with that gospel? Nothing. It was a trick question. (laughs) Nothing is wrong with that gospel, right? That gospel is awesome. It is biblical. It is scriptural. It is from the scriptures, from the teachings of the Bible. Yes, we are sinners. And, you know, I mean, if we understood that gospel, it's life-changing, you know, and it's true. We are sinners, We are created to be in relationship with God, but because of our rebellion and sin, we are separated from Him. And there's nothing we can do to get to God in our own strength. And God, in His mercy and love, gave His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us on the cross, somehow paying the penalty of our sin, so that when we put our faith in Him and His work on the cross, our sins can be forgiven. And it's not by our works but it's and when we believe in him somehow, our sins, he, his righteousness becomes ours. Our sins are placed on him and, and we can be forgiven and cleansed and we can have eternal life in Jesus. <clears throat> it's, it's, the, it's what we typically think of when we say the word gospel. Um, 
I asked my dad about this. You know, he's a pastor, he's been a pastor a long time. And that's the kind of the gospel that he shared with me as well. And it's what we typically say of the gospel. But my, my, what I'm trying to say today, hopefully it's not controversial. I'm not saying that this is untrue. I'm saying it's absolutely true. It's from the teachings of scripture. But what I'm trying to say with, to you today is I'm not sure if that was the main thrust of the gospel that when the apostles were preaching. If you look at the gospel preaching examples in the book of Acts, and even in the epistles when the gospel is preached, you don't hear the apostles saying, giving the fourth step to get to heaven message, right? You don't hear the apostles saying, hey, you're all sinners, but God loves you. He has a plan for you. And you can't get to God on your own because of your sinfulness. But Jesus Christ came and died for you so that you can be saved. That's not the main thrust. Is that biblical? Yes, absolutely. It's the teaching of Scripture. But when the gospel is preached, it is the announcement of who Jesus is. The gospel, when the apostles are preaching the gospel, they want to talk about who Jesus is what he has done, you know, his life, his ministry, his death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension, and that he is coming back again to judge the living and the dead. <clears throat> uh, so this is, I guess, my struggle with, the gospel, with, with um, how we often present the central message of the gospel. So hopefully, right, I think in our church, we all know, hopefully, I hope you all know that Jesus is king. Amen? Right? Jesus is your Lord. Jesus is your king. We all know that. But if we make salvation the central message of our preaching and our gospel and how to get saved, how to avoid hell and how to get into heaven, and that becomes your central message, the truth and the teaching that Jesus is King and Jesus is Lord becomes an additional teaching. And we don't really know where to place that. We don't really know where to place it. I, I, I went to a conference a long time ago. Father Heart Conference. Beautiful. I mean, I love that ministry. But the, an, an, an example that the speaker gave was this. He says, you know, we talk about the love of God and how God came and died for you on the cross so you can be forgiven. You don't, it's not by works. You can receive eternal life by coming to him. And so people take that invitation and they're like, that's awesome. Wow. And so, you know, he, he, he had a, a volunteer come up. Okay. So he's like, so you're a Christian. You're a new Christian. Now you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. But then what does the church do? And this is, he proceeded to say, and then as you are walking and you are walking in the freedom of the Lord, the love of God, the love of the Father, the church, and he, and he picked up a heavy backpack and he put the backpack on this man and he said, well, the church says now you have to read the Bible every day. And so it's like, okay, backpack. And then the church says, and he hands him like a chair. The church says, well, you have to pray every day. Okay, okay, backpack, chair. And then the church says, well, you have to give generously. And then another weight comes upon him. And another weight comes upon him. You have to evangelize. You have to do this and that. And another weight comes upon him. And, and I remember seeing that illustration. And I mean, what he's saying is, uh, you know, the love of the Father is such that we don't have to perform. 
anything and he will accept us. He loves us. He approves of us. So why do we put all these burdens on him? And I remember looking at that and going, that's so profound. That's amazing. The love of God is so amazing. But also in the back of mind thinking, but what do we do with that then? Because we do say that. We do talk about obedience. We do talk about walking in righteousness and obeying and serving others and spending time with God. So what, it was just a little bit... I understood what he was trying to say and I was blessed by the revelation of the free love of the Father. But where do I place this other teaching of obeying the Lord? And it just kind of becomes an additional teaching and at least for me, it's, I fully believe that Jesus is my King and I need to follow Him. But how does that fit into this central message of justification through faith? Like, if, if, if I, it's nothing, it's not based on what I do, you know, I don't have to do anything, then is an obedience optional? And I, I just had cognitive dissonance in my mind. And... Uh, what I see with the gospel that is preached in the early church, in the book of Acts by the apostles, is their central message is, Jesus is Lord. Their central announcement, the good announcement, is Jesus is Lord and Jesus is King. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. Right? He fulfilled all the promises in the Old Testament, and now He is your king, he is my king, he is king over all the earth. Uh, you have been serving the wrong king. So come, come and serve the true king. And this is good news in the sense of finally you can know and you can follow the true king. So when you have that as the central message, uh, following, it's... it's um, Within that message, obedience, submission, um, uh, worship, obedience, submission, worship is assumed and it's implied and it's included automatically. But what is also the amazing news about announcing Jesus as King and Lord is what kind of a king is he? He is a king who saves he is a kind, merciful, sacrificial king. He died for our sins and for our forgiveness. And our salvation is not based on good works. Even when we fail to follow this king, he doesn't cast us away. He says, you can come. Your, your forgiveness, your justification is not based on your works. It's based on what I have done. And so you can come and freely receive forgiveness and freely receive salvation. This is amazing news. It's amazing news because we have found the true king. And it's amazing news because what kind of a king is he? He is a good king. He is a just king, but he's also a merciful, kind king. He's a king who saves you. He's a king who forgives you. He's a king who died on the cross for you so that you can freely receive forgiveness and salvation. But the baseline understanding is Jesus is King and Lord and He deserves our complete obedience. Right? So then the whole talk about obedience and following God is not an additional teaching. It's the central teaching 
but the kind of king. Within the message of this gospel, we also have salvation and justification through faith. So the gospel is not limited to the teaching of justification through faith, how to get to heaven, how to be saved. It's part of the gospel, but maybe not the full gospel that we see um, preached and proclaimed in the early church. I want to read one verse that Nellie shared with me after the first service. Revelations chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. So it says Jesus Christ is the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, But also, it is Jesus Christ who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. It's both of the ideas together. And um, yeah, my contention is maybe our vision of Jesus is too small. Sometimes I think our vision of Jesus is, well, he's my best friend. You know? He loves me no matter what, which is true. It's absolutely true and it's wonderful. But if that is mostly our focus, he died for my sins. He died for my sins, which is amazing. But sometimes I think just within the church what happens is, wow, he loves me and he died for me. What a nice guy. That's wonderful. What a nice guy. I should try my best to serve him and follow him because he's done so much for me. But our vision of Christ, I think, maybe is too small and we miss this vision of Jesus, the Lord of all, Jesus, the King of all the earth, and He deserves my full worship. He deserves my full obedience. He deserves my radical obedience. And I think the early church thrived because they had this vision of Jesus as King and they radically gave up their lives. Right? They had radical obedience, radical forgiveness, radical sacrifice, radical devotion. Obedience, allegiance, worship, submission wasn't optional. It's not, oh, that's good if you can do it, but it's okay if you cannot. You know? But it's no. Jesus is king. And they had the vision of Jesus as their king and Lord. And so they served him and they obeyed him and they walked with him. And I think... That kind of vision, if it can be restored in our understanding of who Jesus is, um, it would prompt us to radical obedience, radical submission, radical devotion to the Lord. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, Romans chapter 10, verse 9, it says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Sometimes I think the way, I'm not, the way I think of the gospel is if I believe and declare in my mouth that Jesus died for my sins. He loves me and he died for my sins. And that's all we limit our belief and confession to. 
You're a sinner, but God wants to save you. If you believe that he loves you and he died for you for your sins, and you put faith in that, then you are saved. But what Paul says is, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I think what the apostles are saying is, you don't just believe his atoning sacrifice on the cross. That's not the only thing. We declare the whole gospel of who Jesus is, the story of Jesus, the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection, and who Jesus is, the King, the Messiah, the Lord. And we declare that, and we believe that, and that leads to salvation. That's the saving, uh, that's the gospel of our, save, our saving King, our saving Lord. And it's, uh, we don't want to limit the gospel to just a how-to-get-saved message. And, and, and I think the early church had that. And because of that, they radically served God and obeyed God. And we need to restore that so that we can also have a vision of Jesus that compels us to follow him and obey him. And I think that kind of following and devotion and obedience produces passion in our hearts. Right? That kind of vision of Jesus produces passion in our hearts because it's not a small vision. It's an incredible, humbling, glorious vision of who Jesus is. Uh, I'm going to invite the worship team. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you. Thank you, Lord, for um, the word from Paul that encourages us to keep our passion and keep our zeal burning for you. And I pray that that would be true in our hearts, God, that we would keep our spiritual fervor that we will not lose our zeal for you. And I pray that the same things that energize the early church, Lord, their experiential knowledge of who you are and their radical vision of Jesus Christ as their King and Lord would, it would be something that we experience as well. God, I pray that you would open our eyes Help us to experience you. Help us to have firsthand experience of your love, your goodness, and your grace. And help us to move past just the understanding of the gospel as a ticket to heaven, obedience optional. But God, that we would understand the gospel as the story of who Jesus is, the announcement of Jesus, the true king of the world, the true Lord of all, and that it would compel us to submit to you and obey you no matter the cost, God. That it wouldn't just be an afterthought or an additional thought that we don't know quite where to place, but that it would be the central thought that Jesus is my Lord and my King. I need to follow him. I need to give my life to him. So I just pray, God, that you would just move in our hearts, God, and and stir up that passion for you, Lord, as we sing this song. Let's, let's rise together. Let's sing this song together.
this, God. Lord, we want to worship you, recognize you as our King and Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would restore our passion for you, God. Lord, some of us once had great passion, but somehow we have lost the zeal and lost the passion and lost the love. And I pray, Lord, that you would do a deep work in our hearts, God, to restore our passion for you, Lord, that we would experience you again, your glory, your love, your goodness, your majesty, God, that you would open our eyes, Lord. And I pray that our vision of Jesus would be so much greater, Lord, that we would see you, know you as our King and as our Lord, and that we would fully obey and submit ourselves to you, God. Thank you, Lord. Hey, uh, before I pray the benediction, I'm going to ask you to stay. Right after the benediction, we're going to have to pray about something. We're going to end the stream. So just remain with us, okay? Let me just pray the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Shalom from this day forever. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.